stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's 1.08 p.m. this fine Tuesday and you're live on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Really excited to be back as always. I'm joined by Greg in the hot seat. Greg, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Kingless. Uh, king. Kingless. Kingless. Over to Simon. I feel like there's an awesome joke in here somewhere. Anyway, we've got a special guest. He's not been in a while. The Cristiano Ronaldo of conflict resolution. The Peter Smichael of peace and security. Simon Allison, welcome. You've been working on those, haven't you? No, that, that's just off the top of my head, dude. That's a freestyle. Wait, where did I actually work on it? How are you doing, man? Um, I'm I'm pretty good, Kingsley. Pretty good. It's good to be back in the studio. That's um, it. How are you doing? I mean, I'm good. I'm excited about the gathering next week. It's going to be a, the lineup this year is better than I think we've ever had. I mean, Pravin Godan, Musi Maimane, Cyril Ramaphosa, Julius Malema, Zalem well, Kezi, I think. Really? I think so. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm pretty we'll excited. We'll find out. I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> I was there last year. Well, I mean, with the exception of, of President Zuma himself, pretty much every political heavyweight in the country is going to be speaking on that stage. Okay. We're going to hear what they have to say. We're going to throw some very difficult questions in their direction. It's, it's going to be magic. And the timing's perfect with so much going on in mm. national politics and the elections coming up. I think it's going to be really exciting. If you're listening to this and you're wondering, how do I get into that room? Tickets are available on Ticket Ticket Pro. Just search in Daily Maverick or search in The Gathering. You can also go through our website. We'll share a link or we'll tweet a link to that just now. It's on June 10th at Voda World. That's in Midrand. So please, please, please come through. If you want to talk to us during this show, that's at DM Shows ZA. You can call in on 0861 555 You can ask us and probably want to ask Simon. Don't ask me. I don't know what's going on, but Simon generally... He's the smartest guy in the room, but not like the Enron guys. There are only three people in this room. I just want to clarify that. <laughs> it's a small sample. Simon, I want to jump into it. We just tweeted this video, and it's something that's sort of been, I suppose, going viral. Uh, the, the hashtag this flag video. And I've been trying to make heads of it. I think you actually spoke with the person who started this. What's going on? It's the most incredible story. There's this guy in Zimbabwe. His name is uh, Pastor Evan Mawarira. And he was at work one day. And he's got a couple of kids, and he was trying to figure out how on earth he's going to pay his kids' school fees. And, you know, this is Zimbabwe. So he's, you know, he's, he's a pastor by weekend and a, a professional MC by week. Um, and he, he, you know, work, work was drying up. There wasn't much going on. Um, some of his clients didn't pay him because they couldn't actually access any mm. money, you know, because, because Zimbabwe has really strict controls on, on dollars at the moment. They're even toying with introducing a new Zimbabwean currency, which most economists predict would be a complete disaster. So, you know, he's got this, this failing economy. Mm. There's not much work around. And he's like sitting there and he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to pay my kids school fees. And he thought to himself, you know what? If this was another country, I'd be able to make a plan. I'd be able to work hard. I'd be able to hustle. I'd be able to access the money in my bank account. All these things mm. that, that all these options that are not available to me because I'm in Zimbabwean, uh, because I am Zimbabwean. And he looked down at his desk and on his desk was, this flag, the Zimbabwean flag. And he thought, you know what? The, this flag is, is meant to be a promise to me as a citizen of what the country can give me. It's meant to promise me these things like security and um, some form of income and health and education and the ability to get your kids through school. And this flag 
this promise that he had in front of him wasn't delivering. And so he, he, he sort of propped his phone up against something on his desk. Mm. And you could see, you know, it, it, the beauty of this is it's so completely he's literally just spontaneous like, and unprofessional. Yeah. Half of his head is like cropped out <laughs> of the video. It's a bit blurry. The lighting's mm. terrible. And, but Pastor Evan just starts speaking. And, you know, he is a pastor. So he's got the, he's, he's got the eloquence. He's got the rhetoric. Yeah. But the, the, the sheer sort of emotion in his voice when he talks about what this flag, mm. the Zimbabwean flag represents to him, what it should be giving him, and where the government of the day is failing him, it's actually extraordinary. It's, it's moving. It is emotional. And even as a non-Zimbabwean, I'm watching this and I nearly got tears in my eyes. I mean, it's so emotional just him going through the colors and he says the black, what it should represent, the gold, what it should represent. It's like, I'm not surprised that it's touched so many people. Exactly. So he, he, he sort of put it on, on, on Facebook and with a comment, something, I think the comment says something along the lines of, um, I hope I haven't gone too far today, but I really wanted to, you know, tell, you know, get my feelings out there. And then suddenly people started watching it and sharing it and commenting it. And his inbox and his Facebook page was flooded with people taking pictures of themselves with the Zimbabwean flag. Um, there's even one where someone like rearranged their dinner in the shape of the Zimbabwean <laughs> flag, which looks completely unappealing. But this incredible positive response and he thought okay wow I'm, i've sort of stumbled onto something mm. here let's you know mm. let's try harness this and he said mm. let's try and do five days of activism to to get this movement going and then at the end of the five days he was being flooded with people saying like five days is not enough we need more so he said okay let's do 25 days mm. which would take them to africa day which was may 25th mm, um just to try and keep the pressure up to you know keep this this momentum the, the sort of citizen engagement going um what was interesting about pastor evan a, a couple of things s- stood out to me when i interviewed him number one is he's not a political guy he's not someone who's been involved ever before he's not in in ngos he's not in political parties and he's explicitly said you know what this is not about zanu pf or robert mugabe mm. all of the politicians have failed us including your Morgans, Fangarais, and Joyce Mujurus, and, you know, all the usual suspects. Yes, they might be in opposition, or, but they haven't actually done their job. The opposition has failed to hold the government to account. You know, the ZANU-PF splits are just different um, sides of the yeah. same thing. Um, so he's not, you know, trying to, 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 to get in bed with the opposition mm-hmm. here. Um, he really just wants some kind of change. And he has no idea how he's going to get it. It's not like there's a concerted mm. plan here for, mm. f- for something to come next. The other thing that struck me was that he is scared. Now, this is Zimbabwe. We know that this is not a place where free speech prospers. We know that people have been locked up for overstepping the line. Um, Itai Zambara, I think his name is, um, he was an activist who was arrested last year sometime mm. And he hasn't been seen since. No one knows where he is. Um, probably he's in a ditch somewhere. Um, this is the kind of fate that Pastor Evan is, is now contemplating. He said he got a call in the middle of the night one night from an unknown number. And the caller said to him, look, you've gone too far. You need to stop this immediately. Or this flag, will will, will put it around your neck and use it to strangle you using his own words against him um, in a death threat. Relatively poetic as far as, you know, heavy-handed, brutal police state death threats go, but uh, still a death threat. Um, So 
you know, he's a normal guy. He's not a politician. He's not a, someone who's thought this through. And I just hope that we can give him enough attention mm. as the media, as civil society to protect him. Cause that is something that, that, that is a power that we have. You know, there are lines that Zimbabwe will struggle to cross and, and the more the better known Pastor Evan is and that mm. this flag movement is, the harder it will be for them to go yeah. after him directly. Yeah. And so I think that is, that, that is an important role that we as media can play um, for him and also just to tell what is a fascinating story. I mean, I've got so many questions just circling in my mind. I, I think the first is just what, I mean, what does it say about the state if, if this, this campaign, which is, you know, not quite a political movement, not quite a campaign, you know, it's, as of now, it's currently just a f- sort of Facebook viral thing it's a fad you know not to insult it but currently that's sort of what it is how how what does it say about the state that already that somebody is making a death threat that they're already feeling threatened that they're already it's and really nothing's really happened well exactly and i think that the the sort of panic reaction of the government and and and, you know you look at um higher education minister jonathan moyo you know, who's quite infamous for being very outspoken um, on the government's behalf. Mm. The things he was saying, you know, he, he he dismissed the whole protest as a a pastor's fart in the corridors of power. Um, I think we know again, who made the death threat. Poetry, I think we know who know. made the death threat. I think it's official. <laughs> and um, you know, he he started his own movement hashtag Our Flag, oh, which um, bombed miserably. But I think why they're so scared is is that this protest is mm. so incredibly subversive in a sort of underground way what what this flag is doing it's reclaiming the national symbol which for, for you know has become you know synonymous synonymous with um the excesses of, yeah. of, of the zimbabwean regime the, the its faults its mm. abuses mm. now they're saying no that's that it's not your flag it's our, it's our flag and if they do reclaim this as a symbol of protest this is the one symbol that the government cannot crack down on. They cannot ban people from displaying the national flag, you know. Well, is it a sin to, to be wearing the national flag? Um, bizarrely, I mean, and this is just incredible and, yeah. and just shows you the, the levels of, of absurdity to which the Zimbabwean state has descended. In Parliament, two opposition MPs came to Parliament wearing the national flag around their neck. They were expelled for, for wearing their own national behavior. flag. Members of parliament were expelled for wearing their own national flag. It is now an offense within Zimbabwe's parliament to, wear the flag. to display the national flag. <laughs> it's absolute lunacy. Um, what does Mugabe think now? Every time he sees the national flag on one of his buildings, yeah. or he sees it like on the end of Probably his, he's got the his, pin, his pin on it on his suit. His pin, exactly. Yeah. He looks at that and he thinks this is now a sign of protest. You know, th- this flag that, that um, I think that I made is now being used against me. I, I think it's a, for, on a symbolic level, yeah. it is incredible. It is genius. Um, and, and it is really, really subversive. And I think that if this movement gains momentum <laughs> and if it can be translated from, from the digital world to the streets somehow – then it has the potential to be exceptionally powerful. Yeah, I can't put it any better than that.
Simon, I want to switch gears for a bit, but still on Zim, I want to talk about the bond note just for a second. This wasn't a part of our plan, but I just can't help it. So everybody's saying that this, this bond note is actually just a, you know, a, a very poor lie and a poor attempt to just actually just introduce a currency. Is there any chance that they could successfully reintroduce the Zimbabwean dollar? Let's start on a sympathetic note. Okay. The Zimbabwean government is in deep trouble financially. They don't have a currency of their own, and they are importing a lot more than they are exporting. Mm. So that means a few years ago when they scrapped the Zim dollar and introduced primarily the U.S. dollar, but also the South African rand and a few other currencies, but it's mainly been the U.S. dollar, um, there, was a, there was a certain amount of U.S. dollars in the country, right? Let's say that, you know, imagine a big pot of U.S. dollars, and that, that was what became the currency. Mm. But every time Zimbabwe imports Import something, something, they have to take from that pot and give it to someone else. So the amount of U.S. dollars in that pot is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And that means there's actually not enough physical cash mm. to go around. So it might say in your bank account that you've got 10,000 U.S. dollars in the bank, in which case you're doing quite well. But you go to the bank and you say, can I have my 10,000 U.S. dollars, please? And they say, well, we don't actually have those notes that they simply don't exist. So we'll give you $50 or $100 at a time. Um, it's creating huge problems in terms of keeping trade going. There's not enough physical cash to keep the economy afloat. Yep. So what does Zimbabwe do about this? It's got a couple of options. Number one is that it starts exporting. So it starts making things that people want mm. to buy. Except Zimbabwe doesn't really have anything that people want to buy. You know, it's, it's sort of destroyed its, its agricultural sector, which was a big money earner. Its diamonds are so soaked in sort of soaked in blood to use the emotive language of, of, of NGOs, you know, associated with so many human rights abuses mm. that they're not part of the Kimberley process. They can't be sold. And diamonds is unselling period. Clean diamonds is the economy exactly. terrible. Exactly. Yeah. So really there's not much options. So Zimbabwe has to do something. They really do have to introduce a new currency. I, I'm not sure that they have another viable solution, except the solution is not very good because what they're doing is they're, they're maintaining this, this multi-currency basket. So yeah. now you're going to have U.S. dollars in the system. You're also going to have these Zimbabwean bond notes, they're called. Um, so they're not officially called a currency, yeah. but, but they're basically a, a de facto currency. Um so now you, you know, you, you go along, you're a seller, um, and someone comes to you and, and wants to buy your nice jar of peanut butter that you're selling them. And they give you 10 Zimbabwean dollar bond, bond notes, notes yeah. which are meant to be worth one to one with the US dollar. Okay. Then you go to the South African border, cross the border, go to ShopRite, and, cause you want to, you need to buy more peanut butter, right? To, to restock your shop. And you say, here are my 10 Zimbabwean bond notes. Um, but bond dollars, can, can you give me peanut butter? The South Africans are going to say, hell no. We can't do anything with this. We can't exchange it anywhere. We want actual U.S. dollars. So what happens then is, is, is inside the Zimbabwean economy, no one who's selling anything wants to accept these bond notes. And if they do, it's going to be at a premium. So instead of, you know, 10 U.S. dollars for something, you're going to demand 100 Zimbabwean mm. dollar bond For notes. the risk that I'm like, – For the risk that you're taking. Yeah. Um, so immediately, before they even entered into circulation, you're looking into incredible 
inflation levels for, for, for the for the bond notes. Um, it's almost sort of an instant hyperinflation mm. going on. Um, I, I don't really know what a better solution is. Um, I think there is a political solution, which is a change of government would open up the floodgates of international aid and international mm. loans, which would get the money in. But, of course, I don't think that is an option that uh, – the current government is willing to countenance. Okay. I think you want a peanut butter sandwich. You brought a peanut <laughs> butter it's, like, it's, it's lunchtime. Yeah, okay, you are, he has this look like somebody <laughs> get this man a sandwich. If you're just tuning in, Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Remember, you can call us 0861 Tweet us. I think Greg's on the on the tweet text. Greg, to a different story, some that you've been following, uh, a country we haven't talked about before, Chad. Mm. And he said, Habre, what's, what's going on there? Well, I think Simon can probably take, a, take, <laughs> take us through it better than I can. Yeah. But Simon, why don't you start with just kicking us off on what happened yesterday with the court in Senegal? Well, it's an incredible story. Hussein Habre, who was the dictator of Chad for nearly a decade until 1990, extraordinarily brutal, renowned for his love of torture, personal love of torture. You know, he'd get involved himself. Um, renowned for um, raping women himself as well, also using that as an instrument of power. Um, jailed opposition by the hundreds, um, treated them terribly. You know, this is a horrible guy. He got deposed in a coup in 1990 and has spent the intervening years in very, very comfortable exile in Dakar, one of Africa's most lovely cities. His victims, um, survivors of the crimes that he committed, have spent those 20 years pushing and fighting for him to be brought to justice. Relentlessly, right? Relentlessly. It's been quite an extraordinary b- battle um, with many setbacks along the way and very slow. Um, and in that, I, I think special uh, mention needs to go to Human Rights Watch, mm-hmm. the, 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 the big rights group who were an instrumental part in, in supporting that process and funding it, and particularly a researcher by the name of, of Reed Brody, who really got personally involved. Um, and, and he Didn't was they call him the, the dictator hunter or something yes, like that. Yes, yeah. he was also involved in um, Augustine Pinochet's right. um, successful prosecution. So he's he's an amazing guy in his own right. But but he really so what's was the bridge. Um, Reed Brody, R E E D Brody, um, and uh, he. Uh, he, he he was able to bridge the gap between you know th- these local survivors who, mm. who who knew what happened and the international community um, who needed to take action. And eventually, he managed to you know not he the, the group the survivor groups managed to persuade the African Union to take this seriously. And eventually, the AU um, requested that Senegal try Habre in their own domestic courts on the, the, these issues that um, he, he was accused of. And that trial has been happening over the last year or so. And yesterday, the verdict was delivered. Um, he was found guilty of crimes against humanity um, and sentenced to life in prison. It really is an extraordinary story and shows that, that there is justice. You know, mm. um, the, 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 the international justice does exist. Um, it can get you. And if you've done these really terrible things, you're never safe. And it was a first, wasn't it, on a number of levels. I think it was first the first time a former head of state was was charged and found guilty. A number of I think it things. was. I think there have been a few he- former heads of state, mm. but this was the first head of state found guilty in another, another country. country. Okay. Yep. Um, and I think it was the first African head of state 
found guilty of anything. I, I stand to be corrected on that. It was also the first time a head of state has been convicted of raping mm, someone. Personally raped someone. Yeah. Um, so, so, so quite incredible from a legal perspective. And is this... Because it sort of looks like we have to almost pause for a moment and just look how momentous that this is. But this idea of the, they call it the Extraordinary African Chambers, the court that was set up in Senegal to to try him. Is that a model for the future, seeing there's sort of a, a kickback against, you know, the ICC in Africa at the moment? That's a really good question. And I don't know, to be honest. I I, I think that international justice in Africa has really taken several steps back over the last few years. And and, and the reason that this Hubre case succeeded is because it, it, it its roots go so far back. You know, mm. the, the momentum behind it is, is comes from many years ago. I don't see there being any momentum in the African Union today to institute a similar court. Um, bearing in mind the expense of such a court um, and bearing in mind the sort of Issues of, of sovereignty, which have really come to define the, the discussion within Africa about international justice, about um, countries being very nervous of of, of ceding jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenya, of course, has been the, the, the cheerleader for um, dismantling the International Criminal Court or, 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 with, or at least withdrawing African states from it um, because they say, well, we should be left alone to deal with our own justice issues. And uh, so I don't think in the near future we're going to see another extraordinary chambers um but i'm hoping that you know given that it has succeeded when the diplomatic tide has turned in a few years time which hopefully it will then yes it's absolutely a model that might be followed however more likely is that um resources and and effort are going to go into creating a sort of african version of the international Mm -hmm. criminal court um i think they're going to call it the african court of people and human rights and it's going to be an an amalgamation of courts that already exist Mm -hmm. um and as much as it's a good idea it's also an an incredibly expensive idea um and i don't think we can afford it for for a long time and it also comes up with a massive massive caveat which is that it's sort of founding charter that this court because because they have signed the sort of documents um to bring it into being um explicitly gives heads of state sitting heads of state immunity from prosecution mm. if we go back to the the case against Habre, then what what was so it took so long for him to get to obviously get prosecuted the, these victims and or survivors as you write in your article today relentlessly pushed for for justice over you know over decades but what was it that allowed senegal to decide to sort of breach that um or be willing to push you know to blur the lines of sovereignty and and charge him was it was it the election of a new president in 2012 or it's two things, actually. Um, one is political, absolutely. So when Macky Sall was elected, he was a far more progressive leader than his predecessor, Abdullah Awade. And um, he really said, okay, let's go with this. Let's, let's, he's a bad guy. He's living on our, on our soil. Let's do something about it. Legally, the mechanism that allowed Senegal to do this is something called universal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And that's a relatively new legal concept, which basically says, look – if someone does something so bad, you know, and we're talking about genocide and human rights abuses and massacres and torture, these kinds of really heinous crimes that, that, that no one can dispute are crimes. If, if someone does something so bad, it doesn't matter where they are in the world. It shouldn't be that, you know, if you've committed a genocide in 
um, Rwanda, you can spend the rest of your life living happily in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- that isn't right. That isn't just. Um, and so let's create this doctrine called universal jurisdiction, which said, says if the crime is bad enough, you can be tried anyway. Um, and many, many countries have adopted this universal jurisdiction. Senegal is one of them. Spain is another very prominent one. And, and they have been quite active in trying to prosecute um, former genocidaires in Rwanda. Um, even though Spain had almost nothing to do with the, the Rwandan genocide, you know, they are still taking on that, that mantle. Mm-hmm. And now Senegal is using this concept to say, you know what, this guy has committed crimes that are so bad. We can we can try them try him here and lock him up here because that's what people like that deserve. Um, it is, however, a very controversial concept. Um, and again, the African Union came out recently in the last year or so to say this whole universal jurisdiction thing is is a breach of sovereignty, and we don't um, recognize it anymore. One of the interesting things I was reading about today, noting this issue, is so Kingsley was asking, are we pinning all of the crimes committed in that era mm. on one man? And, you know, we're sort of looking at it and wondering, oh, yeah, is he sort of, obviously he is ultimately responsible for all these issues, but certainly there are commanders of the police forces, commanders of jails and to- torturers themselves who should be held responsible. And so we looked it up and found out that I think there were, the court in Senegal wanted to indict five Five other people, sort of particularly the leaders of one of the worst torturers as well as the leaders of the police. And they requested Chad to, to extradite them to face-to-face charges. And Chad actually said, no, we're not going to send them over. So which sort of two, – two had been charged in Chad already. Mm. So they did do have some sort of layer of local accountability. Mm. But it was quite interesting that sort of towards when, – when Senegal then tried to – or the, the court that they'd set up, the extraordinary um, African chambers, tried to sort of reach a little bit further outside of its jurisdiction. Chad said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and I, I'm not sure if that leaves me pessimistic about sort of future efforts to do something similar. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the features about the, the, the Habre trial is that he is a, a former head of state. Hmm. He's not a current head of state. Um, and I think that that is what allowed him to, to stay in power. Now, if you look at, at Chad currently, Idris Deby, the president, president of Chad, has plenty of blood on his hands. I'm, I'm sure he would be very worried. And it's in his interests to discourage mm. this process from going any further. Even in, in the time of, 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 of Habre, I mean, uh, Deby was an army officer during that time. He could well be implicated in some of the crimes that Habre was associated with. Um, the other facet to that, of course, is that if you are a sitting head of state and you see, look at what happened to Habre 20 years later, you know that there is no such thing as immunity for you. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a safe exile for you. And the worry is that unintentionally, this verdict may have incentivized sitting African dictators or dictators from all over the world, to stay in power. You know, if you are Robert Mugabe, you look at Habre and say, well, look what happened to him. I better cling on to power for dear life because this is my only safety net. One of the other interesting things or the really fascinating things I I sort of found from this case Mm -hmm. is a response from um, the United States' John Kerry. Where I'll read, I'll read his quote to you. So as a country committed to the respect for human rights and the pursuit of justice, this is also an opportunity for the United States to reflect on and learn from our own connection with past events in Chad, which 
is quite interesting because Harbour wouldn't have been elected or he wouldn't have been able to stage his own coup if the CIA hadn't sponsored his coup and then given him arms and support. Yeah, arms and support to finance his sort of fight with Muammar uh, Gaddafi of Libya. That's so, incredible. I didn't know that background. And it's an amazing admission yeah, from, yeah. from the I was United just States. saying it's amazing that they actually said it. I thought it would just pretend nothing happened and just say it's a great day for justice. It, and it is sort of an interesting question to sort of say on a day when we're holding um, one man and responsible for a system that he enforced. And, and it should also be said that he committed rapes himself, Habre. Um, but where where should we stop with our sort of demand for accountability and justice? I guess in this case it depends on what the survivors and the victims want. But it's fascinating to think about, to ask questions about should the United States potentially be held accountable for its sponsorship of this brutal regime? It's a very good question. And, um, you know, Kerry's statement is even more interesting because the United States is not a part of international justice mechanisms. You know, they, they have not signed up to the International Criminal mm-hmm. Court. They really aren't pulling their weight. And I think it is because they are scared that um, things like the ICC could come after them. I, I know Henry Kissinger, the former um, mm. Secretary of State, mm. in particular um, activists want him to be held accountable for the things that, that he orchestrated in Laos and Vietnam over that era. I think there's probably a case for a lot of things that have happened in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, more recently, um, that the U.S. has never been held accountable for. And I guess as long as they are as powerful as they are, we're not going to see that change anytime soon. I know there have been times when Tony Blair and George Bush arrive at certain countries and there's people who try the citizens. <laughs> did that happen here with the Discovery Summit? I think people tried to arrest Tony, Tony Blair. Blair didn't they? Yeah. Do people actually try it? I can't remember. The, the idea is that I don't know if they actually tried, but there was a plan to, to have a citizen's arrest on Tony Blair or Tambo. How do you do a citizen's arrest? I've always been very intrigued by this concept. Um, and, and what are, where what, do you what, take them? Can, <laughs> yes. You can tweet us or call us in, uh, at DM Show ZA. Well, yeah, have you today. ever, have you ever staged a citizen arrest? <laughs> do you need handcuffs? Do you, I assume uh, you have to at come least cable prepared. ties. At least cable ties. I assume you have to come prepared. Greg, you sound like you know what you're doing. <laughs> I've thought a lot about it. Greg just missed Bashir. He was just trying to, he just missed it. Actually, I, I was reading and Omar Bashir was in Uganda for Museveni's inauguration and we had the whole same debacle again. Everybody said you must arrest him and then. No but, one wants to arrest But even in South Bashir. Africa, that wasn't the first time that happened. It happened in Nigeria before that. Mm. Wasn't, I don't think it got quite as far as it did yeah. here in South Africa. But he keeps on dipping in and out of places, just sort of trying his luck. He travels plenty. <laughs> so and he always has. The, the South African thing yeah. was so big because we are such seen as such a progressive state. Mm. And, you know, of course, you know, Museveni is, you know, president for life himself. Um, he's not going to be too harsh on on, on a, a like-minded colleague, whereas you know in South Africa's democracy and rule of law and constitution and all these like nice treaties we've signed up to, I think the world expected more from us and we we, we failed. Okay, the citizens arrest. Please, please call us in. Oh eight six one two four five one eight nine. I think we're gonna to have to do this thing ourselves, guys. We have no choice. <laughs> all right, now to switch continents a bit, Simon. I've been following the. India. Simon is just freaking out. Simon is like, guys, I wasn't I, sure where this he, going. he only knows about one. Like, guys, I only do Africa. You guys know that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something really random. Oh, there's a joke there. I've got nothing. Um, India. And we've been trying to piece together a timeline of, of where this, this sort of hostile 
environment towards Africans or tax on Africans about where this started and trying to figure out what it was there a spark trying to piece it all together. Have you managed to do that? A, a little bit. The, 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 there is a long history mm. of good relations between India and Africa. Um, going back to the sort of non-aligned movement and South-South mm-hmm. cooperation yeah. and thousands of African students were given places to study at Indian universities. But along with that, there has always been some friction between the the cities in which Africans found themselves in India and local residents. Um, and there have been sporadic attacks and incidents of unrest and demonstrations, etc. Mm. As recently as, you know, it seems to happen every few months that there is an incident of some description. But a couple of weeks ago, 22nd of May, I think it was, a Congolese teacher, 29-year-old, a young guy, he was um, waiting in a queue to try to get an auto rickshaw, you know, one of the little taxis. Okay, took, took him, yeah. And he got into some kind of drunken argument with three Indian guys. It was it was late at night, and they ended up beating him to death. Um, this was followed by more attacks on Africans in various suburbs in New Delhi, which is where the, the, the first incident took place. And... The What made it a big deal, what, what, the reason it has grabbed international headlines is because the African diplomatic community took a stand. Mm. They said, you know what, this has just gone on for too long. You need to do something about this. And they said to India, we are not going to attend your Africa Day celebrations unless you do something. Um, now, India responded. And the, the you know, the, the, the sort of senior figures in government said, mm. oh, you know, we're so sorry. We condemn the attacks. This is bad. We're going to do everything we can to sort it out. But the lower levels of government were not on the same page. And you had the, you know, the, the, the police commissioner, first of all, try to deny that there was any kind of racist, um, or xenophobic motivations behind the attacks, even though, you know, just mysteriously it was all, only black Africans who were targeted. Um, then you had a, a, another minister, the minister of tourism say, oh, well, you know what? Africa is really dangerous too. When I when I went to um, Johannesburg, I was told I couldn't go for a run in the morning because it was so unsafe. Um, going on the defensive as if this was, you know, um, if, as if there was some sort of parallel. Exactly. And then, uh, and uh, another local police chief um, told Africans in in Delhi not to go out or party or go drinking um, because then they would invite this kind of attention. You know, a classic example of victim blaming and one that fa- feeds into sort of stereotypes held in India that Africans are loud, drunk, rambunctious, um, aggressive. Um, and so, so it was all this very, you know, these undertones of very nasty racism and, 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 and xenophobia. Um, the lo- local media reported the death of the Congolese teacher and then they reported the, the death of, not the death, the, the attacks on, on the other Africans. Um, and, and they interviewed one of them who, who was attacked and he was explaining his experience, but they identified him as an African national. Mm. So he, it turns out he was Nigerian, but that's not mm. how he was identified, just as an African national, which is almost uh, – I'm not sure if, it, if, it's, if it's racist or, or, or what the right word is, but, but sort of reducing this whole – you know, the, the Africa as a country thing. Of, of This is a black guy who is only defined as African. He's nothing more than that. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting because even in this relatively sympathetic media coverage, yeah. there were so many misunderstandings and stereotypes and 
um, uh, sort of prejudices that the reporters hadn't been able to overcome. I mean, looking in the quotes, just, I mean, you said this already, but just echoing. Greg and I found, I think, five or six quotes from police officials, government officials, and everyone we found was just like, Africa's dangerous too, guys. Yeah, India's I, big, guys. This, come <laughs> on, guys. And not one person was just I like, think this that, is yeah, the, the general, general yeah. sentiment from the government officials in India seemed to be that, um, it's a very big country in India. These are isolated incidents and perpetuating the idea that India is violent will harm our image and our tourism. This is not racist. Africa is also violent, which is sort of you just sort of <laughs> like, like what? Yeah, no, you just leave it like it was. It's but uh, the, well, the thing yeah. is, you know, I've, I've so I spoke to a, a, a friend of mine, um, a researcher at the University of, of Johannesburg, Vinit Sakur, and he is Indian, um, but he lives here and he actually researches South Africa India oh, wow. relations. So I, I was chatting to him yesterday about this, and I said, you know, what do you think about this? The government's saying we're not racist. Um, and he said that's, that's rubbish. India is a very inherently racist society in, in many ways, not just towards Africans, you know, even within their own society. Well, back from the caste system. It's the caste system, system oh. etc. But, you know, there, there most certainly is a, a very strong element of racism towards um, black Africans in particular. And it's um, something we need to address. It's not something we can afford to sweep under the carpet, which is what we're trying to do. It's a sort of depressing addition to the long, long list of other countries that have also shown antagonism and often outright racism and hostility towards black Africans. You know, over in Russia, there's some sort of horrible instances. Um, in Europe, you've got different, so that's sort of mixed up with all sorts of different migrants. But even in, in, in our own South Africa here, it's not, you know, things aren't peachy. Exactly. I also spoke to, to, to Nick Dawes, who was the, he's the former editor of the Mail and Guardian here. Mm. He's gone on to be the chief content officer for the Hindustan Times, which I think has an incredible circulation of like 8 million people or something. So and just, just above the Daily Mail. Just, just, you know, um, <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah. We're getting there. But, you know, so he, he's got a foot in both camps. He's in Delhi now, but he, mm. he, he knows the South African situation really well. And he said, you know, he can't help but think of the xenophobic attacks here. He said, it's interesting that, you know, the, the condemnation from the African ambassadors, in, which included South Africa, of these xenophobic racist attacks. Well, you know, the, the same goes for what happens in South Africa on a, on a semi-regular basis. Um, and very similar underlying motivations where communities feel threatened, where you're dealing with lots of stereotypes and prejudices. You know, he said uh, there's, there's all this talk about Nigerians being d- drug dealers mm, in mm, India, mm. just like there is here. And of course, Nigerians can only be drug dealers in that, in that sort of mindset. Um, so he definitely sees parallels but i also you know it makes me wonder a lot about we talk so much about south south cooperation yeah. and how developing countries need to basically work together yeah. and we kind of position ourselves as the developing countries on one side and the developed first world countries on the other yeah. and if there is going to be a racial element to this it's almost a, a white person against all the other races, you know, th- th- there is that sort of underlying element. But actually, even within the developing world, th- there is incredible instances of racism between different groups. And, and almost inevitably, it-, it-, it ends up with discrimination yeah. against um, black Africans. Um, if you look at, you were mentioning instances in Russia, in China, there are, you know, th- th- there's there's a whole street in, uh, a suburb in um 
uh, Guangzhou, which is one of the biggest Chinese cities, called um, Chocolate Alley, I think. And that's a pejorative term because that's where the black people are. And you'd get people in China going up to the, the, the going up to black people and sort of pointing and laughing or or touching, going mm. up and, and stroking their face to try and wipe off that's the good. color. Yeah. Uh, th- these are things that you know you, you, you don't think can still happen in the 21st century, even within Africa itself. This happened ye- yesterday or, or a couple of days ago, but but the news broke. The Egyptian ambassador to the UN um, at some UN meeting. Um, there was an, I, I don't know the exact details, but there was a sort of African proposal that, um, Egypt, someone thought Egypt was a part of, and Egypt actually wasn't a part. And his response was, um, something along the lines of, well, we're, no, we're not the same as those dirty rats. I, I can't remember the, the exact quote, I, I must mm-hmm. find it, but, you know, this horrific, entrenched prejudice, Still exists, not just you know, doesn't just come from Europe and America and white people. It comes from all kinds of of different parts of the world, and I think it's something we need to start talking about. If things like BRICS are ever going to be more than just a government roadshow, we need to start thinking about how we as people relate to each other. And of course, it goes the other way as well. You know, um, Chinese people in Africa. Many have reported discrimination and, you know, racism, what they feel is racism against them. Um, it, it, it's not a one-way street, but, but I, I think that we really need to start in somehow engaging more on a community to community level. Um, and I don't quite know how we go about doing that. I mean, there does seem to be a craving for no visas and sort of free borders across the continent. I keep seeing articles, a lot of them fake, um, but some, a lot of them are fake. It's like, this country is just no, it's like, that's not, that's not. But I see, um, Namibia, Namibia is trying to push that with South Africa and some other countries and people get so excited about it. So there seems to be a desire. Of course, the practicalities are something different altogether. Mm. There seems to be a strong desire to, to, you know, to, to abolish the borders and have freedom of movement and be one people and one, Simon, tell me if I'm wrong, but the yeah. African Union and, and the member states have made a resolution, right, to at least have yeah. um, tourist visas. When you arrive, you don't need a visa. You can just get your stamp at the airport and stay for a month or three months or whatever it is. Like I think Ghana has already introduced for mm. all African citizens. So I think that's you know that's a, a small step in the right direction. It's a major step. I think it would be mm. great. Mm. Um, and yeah, the AU has has sort of passed a resolution, but only Ghana, one out of 54 countries, <laughs> has <laughs> actually we'll implemented yeah, it, you know. Um, so I, I think that would, I think, you know, yeah. making travel easier is a massive part of it. Um, I think entertainment too could mm. play a really big role. What do you mean? Um, you know, if we start to see people, you know, I'd, like I'd love Nollywood to mm. start exporting its films more consciously. Um, you know, imagine you had Nollywood films playing in Beijing. Um, and suddenly you get all these Chinese people who are watching black people on TV behaving like completely normal people, mm. doing the things that everybody does. Um, it, it it basically undermines all those stereotypes which say the exact opposite. Um, same goes for us. You know, we are so used to getting our all our our entertainment from the West, um, Europe and mm. and America especially. What if we started watching Chinese films and Indian films? And you know, I, I think that would be a great way to help all of us overcome our own prejudices. Um, music, 
news, all, all of these things. Um, and, and we live in the internet age. We can do this. We can access all of this content. We just got to find a way to, um, to push it out there. Now I'm just I'm just thinking of the Ugandan. I forgot, I'm gonna forget the name, but it's the Ugandan equivalent of a Nollywood, and it's this this one guy who started out making these. I mean, you'd call them terrible films, and it's action films filmed you know in his neighborhood with his mates, and he's built it into like a small like uh, sort of action film empire. I forget his name. I'll tweet the link, and it's so cool. And he just said everybody was laughing at us, <laughs> and then now they were laughing with us. And it was me and my friends, and he's now one of the biggest movie makers in Uganda, and it's it just sort of started having a laugh. It's brilliant. I love it. Also on the topic, or not really on the topic, have you guys seen the Chinese ad that's, that's mm. causing the chaos of the, so it's an advertisement for washing detergent. Um, it's a Chinese lady, black guy walks in and the black guy is hitting on her and she's like, wait one second. She throws him into a washing machine, turns it on and he comes out Chinese. No. I swear to God, Simon, I couldn't kid you, man. No. I, I don't know what they're actually saying, but I think you get the general gist. You can imagine the response. That's horrific. And I mean, that, that just proves our point, doesn't it? And it's been over social media and some different articles yeah. of real, it's really. I haven't read any hammered. analysis. I've only watched the video. I haven't read any but analysis. But I think there yet. has been an apology from, really? from some of those guys in China. I think there has yeah. been, there's been a backlash even in China. But what's, what, what's interesting with that is yeah. our own advertising, uh, industry in South Africa is often criticized for, um, the continued domination of sort of white creatives mm. and w- w- which people, argue uh, leads to perpetuated stereotypes of black people, you know, singing and dancing and sort of that's all they can do in the ads, it seems. But sort of one thing that I think is quite interesting with that is there's um there's new BE regulations for the advertising industry, but they have to be 45, advertising companies have to be 45% owned, uh, black owned soon, which is quite a jump when you look at the mining industry is 26% black owned. That's the sort of threshold there. So it is quite a significant level that the that the industry is going to have to sort of reach and i think it's i think the deadline for that is actually coming up like very soon wow. so i guess That's the hope is that if you transform ownership you you know then it will trickle down mm-hmm. and the content ideally will be you know more suitable i think that's the theory yeah yeah i think the cons are shown and Levy and them did a show on this once we must you know reach out to them did a show about media representation and advertising and stuff anyway unfortunately that's all the time we have simon ellison greg nicholson thanks for coming through Everybody listening, thanks for engaging a bunch of tweets. We've tried our best to sort of engage. Somebody's handle is hashtag bond notes. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> best of luck with everything. Anyway, remember the gathering next week, 10th of June at Voter World. Please, please come through. Julius Malema, Musi Maimane, Praveen Godan, Sula Maposa. You have to be there. Tickets available on Ticket Pro and via the Daily Magic website. We'll see you next week. Please share and download the podcast. Thank you very much. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.